Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and it is the 1st of April and on the show we have... Rob. And Edwin today, and we'll be having Jess a little bit later in the show. But to start off, yes. you've just got us. And so, how's your week been? What do you I mean? You... <laughs> it's been a crazy one, hasn't it? I mean, as uh, we were having a little bit of prep discussion before this, ninety-five percent of everything you look at is coronavirus, and if Indeed. it's not coronavirus related, it's like the 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 your four walls. <laughs> yeah, it's this crazy kind of environment where. I like uh, two weeks ago, I felt weird reading anything non-corona news related, and I felt mm. like well, I should be reading everything to do with coronavirus. And now it's got to the stage of I want to read something not about coronavirus, but now because it's so all-encompassing of every aspect of life, you mm. cannot escape it when you read the news. Yeah. Um, and so we're trying hard to uh, to escape that to sort of explore obviously the other important stories that are happening this mm. week. But it's a challenge. It's very very difficult. It is difficult. And quick question, because I know like some people, I know some people in my circle have been like an opportunity to stay home and be introverted and do nothing. Yes. And other people are going actually out of their minds. Obviously, everyone's in a different scenario. Do you, are you going a little bit stir crazy? Have you got to that point yet? I'm going okay because I am an introvert. And so I've just been using this time to just create art and just sort of, I use it as a way to sort of forget everything that's going on around me and just like make some nice buildings or make some nice art and it just kind of helps me zone out and I've been finding new music artists which is sort of helping me sort of forget everything and I'm actually really enjoying that as a sort of way to break up my week that sounds great (laughs) yeah oh how are you going with it I I go stir crazy I'm not an extrovert but um (laughs) but about two days after being in the house and not doing like going outside and doing things I I go I go I, I, I get a bit crazy. Like, it gets heck. It does. It four does. days off from being, like, a goblin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's interesting. I generally advocate, like, I love, I think high-density cities are good because I love the idea of everyone sharing a backyard, i.e. a massive park. And I think mm-hmm. that's so good for urban design. But it's moments like this where I'm thankful that I have a, you know, a backyard or a sort of at least yeah. a space I can go out and get some fresh air. Um, it's interesting. interesting. Definitely. We, we've, been, we've been hitting... We have a massive garden. We're very lucky. And we've been just like digging into it. Like I've done so much forking, but that's not the point. That's not the point. I do have the show. I do actually have an interesting fact this week. Um, and this kind of spawns out of a love, hate, mostly hate relationship I have with um, April the 1st. Fools. April mm-hmm. Fool's Day. Mm-hmm. I think I have such a weird relationship with this because in, in my family we never celebrated it. So it's something I was very introduced to very, like, very late. I wanted to like gauge what your vibe was with this because I was, I was thinking, do we start off the show and go, "Hey, April Fools"? Do we do we try and do a gag? No. Yeah. So, what's your, what's your thoughts? Um, it's interesting. I mean, 
it's one of those things that I always forget every year and then it happens and I read something and I'm like, this seems ridiculous. And I check the watch and it's first of April. I'm like, oh, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I'm just hoping the, the whatever comes out today, it's, it's appropriate in terms of it's not like just, it's not insensitive in regards to what's going on with the world Ooh, at large. I hadn't considered that at all. And like people actually don't think of it as real news because everything mm. is going Everything's kind of so hard, like so fantastical now that if someone comes up with a genuinely believable story, it might actually spread as real news when it's actually fake. Yep. Gotcha. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen throughout today. But That's interesting. It's like a weaponized April Fools. I had not <laughs> that. What I have had a look at is I thought it'd be kind of fun to catch you up on the, some of the history around April the Fools because I looked oh, yeah. it up and it's actually like quite contentious which is kind of like like the day itself. So our first mention of something potentially April Fool's related is in 1392 in uh, one of Chaucer's um, stories in the, in the Canterbury Tales, which is, you know, his famous pivotal text. So it's in this um, collection of stories called the Nun's Priest Tale, where basically a protagonist is, fooled, is, is like tricked by a fox into believing that March has 32 days instead of 31. Ergo, the 32nd day being the 1st of April, April Fool's. Uh, that's your first mention. However, at the moment, that's currently a myth that's been busted because I think it's a clerical error and the person <laughs> creating the book actually meant to say 32 days after March, March, the 2nd of May. So that's like the first potential maybe mention of it. Um, mm. The second theory is kind of one of my favourite theories. It's um, where a French poet actually makes reference to it in 1508 and he makes reference to um basically fish of april which translates to the fool of april it seems like this is our first explicit reference and i I love this it's because apparently back in the middle ages they used to celebrate new year's eve on the 25th of march right and this celebrations would continue until the first of april about a week afterwards about a week afterwards and what they're saying is that the people who did this and ended on the 1st of April would often mock and make fun of other towns that held their New Year's Eve on different days throughout the year. So April Fool's became like this mockery day where you just kind of bagged out another European town celebrating New Year's Eve. For different April Fool's. For different guess, April Fool's. So now, yeah, so now we just solved the problem by putting it all in New Year's Eve, more or less having one New Year's Eve. We've to been... Maybe the world. It's the biggest act of social harmony that I've ever seen. <laughs> Does that mean we should like disband an April Fool's as a concept? Because we we've more or less unified. We've kind our of fixed system. fixed that problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, the oh. final the final few mentions of them they're just they're kind of fun. In the the 1500s seem to be like a key point for them because we also have like a Flemish poet who on April Fool's days apparently sent his servants on like foolish errands for the day, which is just <laughs> a terrible thing to do. Um, yeah. Well, the- now I feel very enlightened about what April yeah. Fool's Day is actually yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for that. You're welcome. It's it's. There's just so many references, and I like how the fact I like the fact that the day is just as confusing historically as it is in the current, especially with as you said, like our post-truth sort of context. Anywho, apart from that, um, we're going to get on with the show, as you've mentioned. So we will be getting onto alternative news in a minute, and then. We will be listening to some of the uh, some of the audio I recorded at the conference, um, which I, I mentioned last week. So this is from the Activism at the Margins conference earlier in February, held in Melbourne Town Hall, and we'll be getting on to two key speakers from that, which were like pretty pretty cool. Anyway, first up, alternative news.
And you're listening to 3CR with Edwin and Rob. It's the 1st of April. We've mentioned that. We also just want to give a heads up. Our audio might be a little bit fuzzy. This is still us playing around with new systems. Um, but we still thought, you know, why not go for it? So alternative news this week. I actually have been seeing this image floating around the internet and I wanted to find out more. So it's been um, a lot of chili protesters holding up this sign of basically an eye. And I didn't know the significance of it, so I wanted to find out a bit more. Um, as you may know, Chile obviously has been experiencing some huge civil unrest as protests rippled throughout the country last year. Now, this was due to a raise in transport prices, which is it kind of typifies the amount of kind of socioeconomic problems that have been going on in Chile and building for years um, before this. So it erupted in a mass kind of movement against the state, which is still going on. And the eye seems to have kind of become the symbol of the people. And unfortunately, looking it up, it's actually due to the um, extensive use of tear gas by the government. In fact, a little bit of a sad news story, so my apologies for starting on a downer, but 445 people have suffered eye injuries in the about five months of unrest that Chile has been kind of really ramping up protests. More than 34 people have either lost their eye or their eyeball has like burst from the impact and this is being called out as a major human rights kind of violation of this weaponized tear gas against the public um so yeah it's um if you do see the eye that's that's where it comes from that's where it's been kind of started a whole bunch of chili protesters have basically started wearing eye patches in protests they've also uh created a black version of the chilean flag with an eye replacing the star and it, it just shows you that this, despite, you know, coronavirus and all these other crazy things happening to our world, there are still these, these movements rolling on. Absolutely. Yeah. So I thought that would be an interesting one to bring up. And just as kind of proof, proof that it is, this movement is continuing. Um, there was a massive march, uh, like nationwide on women's day actually happening, which just throughout the city. And it was quite wonderful in tone because it was a lot of women coming out to celebrate International Women's Day, but also fight out against the state. Um, and, and with that, I mean, if you want to find out more about that, you can follow Al Jazeera, which has been f- doing quite a bit of reporting into this area. The last point I kind of wanted to touch off before I pass over to you, Rob, and this is picking up on the latter part of that uh, on International Women's Day. It's a bit reflective because, you know, that was at the start of March, but um, I thought it was really important to also point out that thousands of women have marched across Pakistan this year celebrating International Women's Day in their um, third year of what they call the Arat March, a woman's march. And this is, of course, a huge act against the state, hugely significant. The theme for this year's march was uh, My Body, My Choice, which, according to the organizers' organizers manifesto, is about demanding a society without exploitative patriarchal structures and control of economic resources, uh, the rights of women to make decisions about their own bodies and the ending of harassment, forced religious conversions and the sexist portrayal of women in the media. So just, I don't know, I wanted to bring it up because it kind of got a bit passed over with International Women's Day. You know, we hear a lot about what Australia's doing, what, you know, your, your workplace is doing with their morning tea, whatever. Mm. Um, but just, it's that 
again, it's that idea that this ball and this social change is constantly happening and just these amazing things uh, get, you know, pushed to page five. <laughs> so I thought it was mm. worth bringing up again. Anyway, those are my alternative news bits. Yeah, and absolutely on this point of how there's so many different experiences of International Women's Day reflecting obviously the different stages that each country is at. And in some ways we should be giving more recognition to those countries that are actually fighting harder for these basic rights that we take for granted every single day. Absolutely. Um, so I think, yeah, that's a really powerful story. Um, so my story is a, is a news story that shouldn't be alternative in more ordinary circumstances. Yet at this point in time, it really does feel alternative, which is, kind of scary and like as i was saying i was saying to iwa before the show i spent ages trying to find an article that wasn't obviously coronavirus related um and so this is the article that i could find was actually about the great barrier reef and so this in light of the record-breaking heat in australia there's been the great barrier reef has experienced its third mass bleaching event in five years so currently there's a survey that's being undertaken throughout queensland and so there were two former mass bleaching events in 2016 and 17. So this is the third one within a five-year period. And the frequency of this is so critical in terms of the recovery of the reef. So coral reefs can recover from mass bleaching events. However, when it's this frequent, in that it's three times in five years or sometimes back-to-back -back years, it really limits the chances of a healthy reef recovering at all. And obviously this is so important for a huge range of reasons obviously for the inherent right of the reef to exist on its own terms. It's an amazing ecosystem um, and has such a critical importance for aquatic ecosystems across the world. Uh, and also because it actually is really important for human lives as well in terms of uh, reducing the severity of cyclones. So the Great Bay Reef is actually a really important part of reducing the significance, the severity of cyclones as they come through. And when they come to land, it's much less significant and much less damaging. And so as this reef will start to die and the coral starts to break down because it doesn't have any life to it, it's actually really going to affect our resilience in the years to come. And this is really vital in order for us to be able to actually sustain our societies in light of increasing cyclones in the years to come. But the thing, as I was sort of alluding to at the start, the thing I found really fascinating about this story is that it didn't feel out of place at all reading it in light of everything that's going on. So it's kind of made me wonder, you know, say in 10, 20, 30 years time when environmental crises become so common, whether we'll just start to become so desensitized to environmental disaster amongst all the other disasters that we'll likely be facing, uh, in particular food security. Um, but in light of sort of trying to find sort of a new story, not about coronavirus, I actually came across this really great blog this morning. It's called COVID Windows. It's on Instagram. Oh. And it's a community where people are documenting their experience of living at home. And so they're taking a photo of their window and what it looks out onto. And this is sort of a global art project and it's community based. And the thing I really love about this is that it's collective and participatory art, which at this point in time is so critical. Um, and particularly the thing that's really interesting is that it is a very unique time in that this is a uniquely global crisis that is being experienced so painfully at a very precise, similar time, unlike any other kind of environmental catastrophe that we've experienced. Like, yes, we experience heat waves and fires and floods, but they're all kind of spread out throughout the year. And this is one moment all at the same time. And so I think it's a really powerful and beautiful kind of artwork that's starting to bring the community together amongst many of us living in isolation and so yeah so the instagram blog it's called covid windows and i definitely recommend you check it out 
That's awesome. And I got two points on that. Like um, a, a thing that's popped up around the community that, similar to this is the, uh, the teddy bear hunt. Have you seen that? No. So basically the idea is your kids are in social isolation. You're also in the house with your kids 24-7. Take them outside no. for a walk, right? You know, as you're allowed to do. Quick little walk around the neighborhood. And people are actually putting teddy bears in windows so that oh, when the kids wow. like go out for their, you know, 20-minute walk or exercise, they can do like a little teddy bear hunt. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's like an, it's another community initiative and it's just been like it's been happening globally in this case. And I, I don't know, similar to what you've been saying, like it's such a lovely, sporadic, but like really powerful thing to do. We're going to go into our first our first kind of interview for the day or our first recording, I should say. This is a conversation from the Activism in the Margins conference. And the first one's a bit of a treat. Uh, one of my personal favorite speakers. Um, it is, he's an American poet called Javon Johnson. And unfortunately, I was going to have this interview way back in February during the conference, but um, our, our phones weren't working on the morning. You guys might remember my technical hiccup <laughs> throughout the show. Anyway, I caught up with him later in the day and was actually able to discuss his most recent project, uh, which is called A Story of My Mother's Hands, Black Joy as a Theory and Model. And um, I, I'll let the, I'll let him speak for himself, Javon speak for himself, but it's this wonderful project he's working on right now looking at how we express joy, construct joy in our modern society, and how we can practice it as civil resistance. So this is my interview with him. I've left it deliberately rough because I think there's so much beauty in the kind of dorky conversation we ended up having. Um, but I hope you uh, enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Javon Johnson about his recent work, A Story of My Mother's Hands, Black Joyous Theory and Method. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, so your story is built around your mother. Can you tell us the process of choosing this extremely personal figure and subject and kind of sharing it in your work and with your audience? Yeah, so, you know, I was uh, born, born, born out of an intellectual tradition or, or started in an intellectual tradition that rooted in uh, a feminist logics that the personal is political, right? Um, that, that, that our personal stories matter, that they have weight, that they're not innocent, that they, I mean, you know, innocent meaning that they're not apolitical, that they have uh, a, uh, that they do a thing in the world and help shape you and can help shape understandings. And so it, it's in the light of that, the, right, this idea that the person was political that uh, I, I often use personal stories, right? I often speak from the autobiographical eye in my research, right? Uh, because I am the one that's writing it, right? Like I don't speak from this disembodied place that one must you know, when, when writers are write about one, and I'm like, well, who is this one, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we write things, and so I wrote it, I speak from it, um, the I, uh, with all of my, my cultural baggage, my cultural capital, with all of my biases and, you know, concerns in the world goes into that. And so I say all of that to say I, I often speak from a very personal place when I, when I do research. And, it, you know, I, I think this idea that the person was political and this idea that I, I speak from the uh, uh, use personal research also uh, not only, again, the person was political, but also speaks from the fact that now I'm losing my train of thought. I had a good I think I had a good point that I was going to make, um, but I'm, I'm slightly losing my train of thought. So okay. I, I might come back to it. Um, so I suppose touching on this theory of joy and method of joy, mm -hmm. I kind of really wanted to break down a uh, theory of joy. Could you kind of break down how? You kind of deconstructed, I suppose, the definition of joy, and then sorry, of joy, and then uh, explored its theory. I, I, it, it's interesting how you've almost chronicled it all, mm. kind of broken down to a science almost. Could you kind of break that for us? Yeah. So I'm, I'm working through, I think, a, a quite a bit of, of, of people, right? That I'm trying to think through. I'm, I'm thinking about 
in the paper initially. And again, it's, it's in its early phases, so it, it'll likely change as I continually read more about what joy is and isn't. And I'm working through Ross Gay's short essay called uh, Joy is Such a Human Madness. I'm working through Lamar Jarrell's uh, work on madness, particularly how uh, you know how to how to go mad without losing your mind. Uh, uh, and I'm working through Fred Moten's notion of Afrofugitivity. I'm working through Frenny Howe's essay on bewilderment. Right, like I'm, I'm thinking about all of these things, and and so part of the idea then to to sort of step back as a theory is asking what does black joy do and how does it how does it how does it function in the world and in in in, a, in terms of like resistance right um and um not always having to think about large resistance right civil disobedience mm-hmm. protests right uh, organizations and things like that but thinking about everyday acts of resistance right the sort of quotidian right what we do every day to push back against dominant power and part of that, I think black folks often push back against dominant power by sort of refusing dominant logics, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a, a, a kind of, of kind of, a kind of everyday disobedience, right? A kind of, right? Uh, just a rejection of obedience, right? In the sense of so, so if I, if I take it a step back and sort of go through some of those names, right? Ross Gay tells us in a very uh, brief essay that joy is indeed a human madness, and and he gets there by saying, you know, he thinks joy is you know related to pleasure and delight, but it's something different. And what makes joy different is that terror is always present. That which makes life absolutely amazing is joyous because the terrorization of being without a thing is always present and it sort of heightens right uh it kind of heightens pleasure it kind of heightens delight mm-hmm. right and he sort of goes through this by saying if i and i'm, I'm par- uh, paraphrasing here but he talks about one of the most beautiful things he's ever heard anyone say that came from a student and when he asked her how do how does she want her classrooms to look like like what are, what does she aspires her classrooms to be and she goes uh what if we joined our wildernesses together Right, and he's like, I want us to think about that seriously for a moment, right? Like this idea that the body, that our lives, have an unexplored territory, right? And that in the deepest unexplored parts of ourselves is where sorrow is, and what happens if we join those sorrows in this profoundly interconnected way? So I'm thinking about that, right? <laughs> like that's, it's like it's, it, it hits me, right? Like what does it mean that I could share my sorrow with you and you could share that sorrow with me, this mm-hmm. kind of profound vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? And then I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking, I move from there to think about Freddie Howe's sort of discourse that wilderness as a metaphor might not be enough, that we might perhaps be thinking of more towards bewilderment, that wilderness is the wild, the unexplored. But what happens when you get completely lost, that there's no reference of, of, of reconcilability with that complete loss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that what happens then, and she goes, that's bewilderment, that, because an enchantment happens, right? And I'm, I'm thinking about putting those things together, all in conversation with uh, Lamar Jarrell Bruce's notion of what he calls slavocratic reason and, and what he calls phenomenal madness, right? Um, and particularly, he's arguing that reason, capital R, is a project really devoted to sort of 
white supremacist, Eurocentric, sexist, homophobic, right, kind of modes of being in the world. Mm-hmm. That to be reasonable is to push back at that which is unreasonable. And unreasonability is almost always attached to those subjugated beings in this sort of larger white world. Right, because it's like it's defined rule system. Right. So it's obviously the rules are made by someone and that's made by the power and the privilege right. of that method. Yeah. And so he's saying, you know, what happens to the unreasonable? And, and for him, and, you know, looking at decidedly U.S. scholarship, he's sort of arguing that black folks have always been an unreasonable thing in this in, in, in the U.S., right? Particularly thinking about like drapetomania, this idea that slaves who wanted freedom were crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was a that was a thing that psychologists discussed, right? Mm-hmm. That they're losing their minds. Why would they want freedom? It's like, uh, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I forget the other one. There's another name that came after slavery. Another term about those who, once they had freedom, were obviously mad and insane, right? So you have this long tradition of black folks being inherently mad for wanting to be. To be. Yeah. To simply be. Mm. The, the nerve of that idea. Mm. And so I'm like, okay, well, if blackness is always already mad, according to Marjorie, and joy is a human madness, right? What, how, how can we marry that and think about black joy as a theory that pushes back against what again, Bruce calls slaveocratic reason, this sort of dominant order that never saw me as human to begin with, mm. right? Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm thinking that hum- black folks owe nothing to the project of logic. We owe nothing to the project of reason. We owe nothing to the project of humanity, right? Uh, because those projects never saw us as, as complete functioning beings to begin with, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm asking them what therefore happens. How does joy look like? And and, and, and what pushed me to this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of wrap this up because I can be long-winded to this point, but what pushed me to this is, like, I think about, like, so all of these sort of U.S. Uh, sort of police state-sanctioned deaths of black people, right? Um, I don't know if you've been following that, right? Um, and what gets me through these moments are not always... The, the street protest, but what gets me through is smiles, is the la- the ways in which black folks are able to still smile, to have joy that does not make sense to, like, how do we still smile in spite of, mm. in a world that does not understand or want our existence, how do we still smile? And that for me is madness. That for me is, 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 is mad in a logical order. That, that we're pushing back with via joy. And it's in that joy that we have a shared wilderness, that shared sorrow, that, that we come together and hold each other in the most unexplored parts of ourselves. And the last thing I'll say about that is I, I, I remember post the murder of Trayvon Martin, and I remember that jo- when George Zimmerman was uh, acquitted, and there were protests in the streets, and I went to some of them, and they were important. But what hit me and what sticks with me is how many of us saw each other and we hugged and we smiled in the middle of the protest. I saw, I saw a father just touching his child's face. The joy in this sort of incredibly shared sorrowful moment is, is bewildering in this sort of enchanted way that I'm trying to go, how do, how do I make sense of that? What, how, do, how, do, how do I use that? How do I think through that as a way of, of being in the world? 
it's a huge amount of body of work and yeah. I think it's a very complex thesis but it makes complete sense um, looping this back to your mother and that idea of joy as a method joy I suppose in your household growing up with that um, I suppose I wanted to touch on obviously we have organic moments of joy uh, but we also have constructed almost moments of joy and I was wondering if I could get you to kind of expand on that yeah so the reason why I start with my mother the, the literal thing starts by saying this is nothing more than just a project about my mother's hands, right? I, were you, were you, you were there in the room? I was there for the questioning. Uh, I unfortunately so, so missed no, that. No worries, no worries. So the, the, the project, literally, the first sentence is this is nothing more than a project about my mother's hands. And all I do is talk about her hands, her brown hands, her soft brown hands, which can have a red or a dark undertone depending on who you ask or the chore that's doing in the moment, right? Uh, which I make a joke because, uh, you know, a lot of U.S. black folks say we have a, a Native American in our families, right? Which is true to some extent, right? Um, because when, when a lot of times slaves often ran, some of them sought refuge in, in indigenous sort of spaces in the U.S., but whatever. With that being said, uh, I talk about her hands. I talk about the cracks in her hands, the crevices. I talk about so much. I talk about scars in her hands and what they mean. And I get to this place uh, where I talk about, like, uh, my mother would brush our hair, right, until there were entire waves on our head. And waves, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Or it's uh, So young black kids often brush their hair and train them to there's like a little wave pattern going in there, right? Mm-hmm. It's smooth. You wear a do-rag at night to protect it, but it's, it's that, right? And I talk about how she did that to there were entire oceans in our head. And then I talk about like, by the time I finished high school, I had traveled more than most of my family had ever done probably by the time I finished college I traveled more than my entire family combined and when I say family I don't mean my immediate family I mean my 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 grandmother's children she had eight children adopted one I have 40 some odd first cousins I had traveled more than them combined and I talk about like you know there was by the time I went to like my third trip I didn't take pictures and I used to always take pictures and come back and show my mom and my mom was like why didn't you take pictures and I I I remember telling her if I want to go if I want to see Atlanta again I'll just go back and I didn't know then what I know now is that the world was small is smaller for me than it is for her right and that was only made possible by her hands right and what I mean by that is my mother has not traveled much. She's traveling lately because I literally buy her plane tickets. I want her to see this world that she opened up for me. The same world that refused to open itself up for her. Right? At that point in her life, I think as far as she had gone, it's probably Las Vegas and again, three hours from LA. Um, And so I I say all of that to say like, uh, you know, I remember my mom wanted to go to New York and she was like, I just want to go to Broadway and see a play. And I was like, well, then just go. Like, for me, if I want to go, I'll just go. And it, it, again, it, didn't, it, it dawned on me much later that she gave me a freedom that she never had. Right? Like, I am out of the country maybe five or six times a year. Mm. She's done it once, I think. Because of my brother's wedding, right? He did it in the Bahamas, right? Um, <clears throat> and I say all of that to say... My mother, then, I go from that story to talk about, like, uh, my mother loves to tell the story that when I was a really young kid, when all the kids asked for presents for Christmas, uh, toys for Christmas, I asked for a cash register and a globe because I was going to travel the world and I needed to count my money 
that I made while doing so. Right? Um, no longer need the cash register, right? But I traveled the world frequently, right? And I, I kind of knew I was as a child. And I was always like just really caught up in other parts of the world. Like, what languages do they speak? What do they do on Saturday mornings? Why? I wanted to know what other people did differently and similar to me and, and what other different people did and, and how can I borrow good things from them? How can I share? With, like, these are things that have always been on my mind, which is to say my mother instilled oceans in my head, right, to go back to the metaphor of the waves, mm-hmm. right? And the, the oceans have always been on my mind kind of thing. And, and what it means to cross them, right? Um, and now I study colonial crossings of oceans, but here we are. So the point that I'm ultimately making here is um, she collapsed the world for me with her hands. It was her making. And then I go from that story to talk about another story, and this will be the last one to sort of tie it all together. Mm-hmm. We, I grew up really poor, right? Um, and uh, and uh, I remember wanting, my mother told me, because I've been interviewing her for this project, mm-hmm. they told me that I wanted a Smurf theme. I, I, my mother's very creative, but she doesn't really call herself an artist, right? And I was like, when did you start creating things? When did you start painting things, bedazzling things, making things look better than what you than, than what they, they, they were? And she goes, you know, you were young and you wanted a Smurf themed birthday party and we couldn't afford it. So I bought the, the, the decorations and made the cake. And it was from then that she realized that she can make things. And she continually made things, clothing, all kind of furniture, all kind of stuff, right? Not like furniture, major furniture pieces, but like small, like decorative pieces. Um, and I, I say all of that to say my mother taught us that she gave me joy in that. The idea of creating is a joyous thing, right? Because her first act of creating was to give to her son. So for me, creating is a joyous thing. It's a, it's a creating is always a gift, it's, it's what I'm giving you, and in exchange, give me something back. And my mother then, it was in her creativity that she created, she birthed creatives. She had the son who's not only an academic who goes around speaking, but who's also a poet performer. Mm. She has another son who, who is a fat, makes clothes for a living, has a clothing line, right? And I, I always use that story to say my mother taught her sons that joy can be created through hands. That we can make a thing a thing. And I wanted to think about that as method. What does it mean to create and sustain that joy? And to go back to the theory of it all, what does it mean to make, create, and sustain that joy through our shared wildernesses, through our shared bewilderment? Does that make sense? Completely. I, I know... This is not quite the same, but growing up in my family with my mother, it's those small, tiny acts like making sandwiches or eggnog on Christmas, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. And they're these little rituals or things that they do, which is, sometimes mean the most, right. you know, compared to something like a formal tradition or, or something that costs. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and so, so that's really how my mother got into it. Um, she was a ph- phenomenal mother not was is a phenomenal mother mm-hmm. still to this day i mean they you know, as adult as i am there's still days i just want to call my mom and go <laughs> home i'm like i'm just coming home like, which i do from time to time i just go to la and be like all right i'm just here mom I'm just here. <laughs> yeah um but yeah and so you know a lot of my my writing and my work is an attempt to pay homage to the work that she did like you know to go back to what we were talking about as we walked over here i often think about 
like I just planted an orange tree and a lemon tree. And they're small, they're baby trees. The orange tree is already bearing fruit, but at this early stage in the game, it's inconsistent, it's irregular, it might not even taste good. I've not even opened one up to see because they... Too small. They're too small. I tried to open one, it was just difficult. And I was like, ah. (laughs) But the point is, I think about, what if I leave that house? Yeah. What if I go buy a home somewhere else? That means I planted a tree for someone else to bear the fruit. And I'm okay with that. And I think that's what my mother did for her children. She planted trees for us to bear fruit that she made. She didn't even imagine she would taste. Right? And here I am just eating high on the tree, just loving the fruit. And I'm going, come on, Ma, travel this world, taste this with me. And so, you know, it's always this attempt to be mindful that she planted trees without without even like, like yeah with like she planted trees not not even knowing whether or not she would taste the fruit and what the amazing selflessness in that right the, the amazing like, the, like it's small right but the profound selflessness in it that I am going to plant trees that I will never take advantage of why because someone needs them that's it it's definitely something to celebrate, I yeah. believe, and something to pay homage to. And it's such a beautiful project, which is why I wanted to get you to speak, because I just think it has so much richness and power in it. Um, I suppose the question I always like to ask of these sorts of thoughts and these sorts of um, pieces of work is why this story? Why now? In the idea of, in the idea of, we, we stand on giants when we when we create these thoughts. And you've mentioned some of your inspirations, but how do you hope that this will contribute to uh, the wider movement or the wider circulation of ideas around this? Yeah, I just I often want to think about small acts of resistance, right? I think about them because I, I'm, I'm really invested in what kind of acts of resistance. Uh, that are not always big that we can still do. I think about that because I wonder about how resistance uh, resistance is. <laughs> um, what resistance is? Right. Well, no, not what resistance is. Like modes of resistance, various okay. forms of resistance. Like I'm trying to think about like how do systems co-opt them? Right. Uh, I heard a talk the other day where someone was talking about Singapore. Um, only allowing for uh, their their people to uh, uh, protest, but they have to get uh, a a um, permit. permit. I'm like, yeah, that's bonkers, right? And I remember being in college, we had a free speech space. And I was like, Mm. that's weird. And why is no one arguing against this? Mm. Because technically speaking, I'm in a public university, so it should all be free speech space Mm -hmm. because, you know, First Amendment rights in, America, yeah. in the U.S. Right? What the f- so I'm like frustrated, like, and I'm like, that's a co-opting of resistance, right? Like, you can resist if I let you, but by definition, then that's therefore not resistance. No resistance yeah. So I'm thinking about the small ways that we resist, right? Um, what 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 Michel de Sarto might call a tactic, right? These ways in which people still find opportunities to push back. And for me, these are important too. These are not to supplant or replace these sort of larger sort of resistance movements, these larger sort of protests, these larger sort of acts of of disobedience, but it is to say these two matter, Mm. right? Um, You know, and even Patricia O'Collins in her keynote began talking about this Mm. um, night one, 
right, um, of the conference, this idea that we focus on, we, but we forget the sort of minute, the sort of everyday acts that people engage in. And for me, joy is one of many. And I'm interested in joy. I'm also interested in joy because I, I'm, I'm more silly than I am serious. Like, I, I talk about a lot of serious things, like, in my, my own work, but I am actually a really, really silly person, right? Like, um, I, I, you know, and I, I have this poem uh, talking about my own, like, masculinity, and I grew up fighting a lot and how I want to have a healthier masculinity, but this world has never allowed me to, 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 to unclench my fist, right? Mm. And I talk about that, and I talk about, like, I get to this point at the end of the poem where it just reaches a boiling point where it's like, you know, I was I was at this point when these people did this, I was, and, you know, I was like, I was 35 when this happened, I was 35 when this happened, and I was like, I was 35 ready to break somebody wide open. I was 35 when my niece grabbed me by the face and said, Uncle, you're so silly you're always so silly and I think about that moment and how she knows me so differently than everyone else Mm. she knows me as this big old silly kid that comes back to LA and laugh and joke and just do the silliest of things with her and that sustains me that kind of I find love and joy and perhaps what I'm finding in my reading about joy is the sharedness of it the shared unexplored territories of it, right? To go back to gay, to go back to friend, uh, Fanny Howe, right? And, and it's that that, I, that, I, that I'm interested in exploring both personally but larger and political, like thinking about how everyone else does it too. Profound shared experience and energy, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, the last thing I really wanted to ask you, because um, just from hearing you, you're obviously following a lot of different works, a lot of different authors. I was wondering, could we kind of get your book or media suggestion for listeners to look in and learn more about this area and more about just some of the top some of the wide-ranging topics that you have touched on today yeah oh that's tough i mean like i said i named i'm now i'm forgetting fanny Howe the name of the piece but if you search fanny Howe uh bewilderment um if you search up ross gay's joy is such a human madness if you search lamar jarrell bruce j-u-r-e-l-l-e Bruce, uh, his work on madness uh, and losing your mind, or black madness and losing your mind. Um, those are really important works. The last work that I, I mentioned, but I didn't really go into it, was Fred Moten's notion of Afrofugitivity, mm-hmm. which what he's doing is trying to talk about all the ways in which black folks steal parts of their lives back. Right? Mm-hmm. So, meaning, like, even in. So, like, even in. Uh, you know, U.S. chattel slavery, black folks had moments of what he calls stolen life, where we we weren't free, but we took back moments uh, to feel free, be that, you know, runaway acts, like that's why he's using fugitivity, running away, be it finding moments via song that's joyous, be it, um, you know, at nighttime, whatever those moments were, mm. folks stole moments of their lives back. And I'm thinking about what that means in the sort of current moment about like, what does it mean to take like moments back, right? Um, this sort of fugitive state. For, for Moten, black folks are inherently in a fugitive state, but, that, but that's neither here nor there. So I think his work, is it matters, I think, um, or is worth looking into. Um, yeah, I, I think those are some, and I'm still searching for more myself, right? Like, mm-hmm. again, this is a very, very early room, you know, 
sort of iteration of this, right? And who knows what it'll be at the end? Who knows what I'll read that might change my thought process mm-hmm. on it? Um, right now I'm reading, though, a, a friend of mine's book uh, called um, Salvific Manhood um, about uh, James Baldwin and what James Baldwin works teaches us about black masculinity and who has the right to be saved, right? Like we think uh, in the U.S., like black folks don't aren't given multiple chances, they aren't given multiple chances for to be us, uh, to have salvation. Um, and he's sort of thinking through that, right? Mm-hmm. And how black male intimacy, queer, straight, and otherwise, opens up spaces of of a very sort of spiritual salvation. Um, yeah, that's that's what I'm reading at the moment. But yeah. Well, thanks for your thoughts at the moment. At the time, I can't wait until it manifest into something bigger or where it goes thank you thank you thank you for for having me can i get a bit higher it just blasted up exactly in the AMs. Probably the hunger had struck me. The push to stay alive is upon me. When I watch, I watch the pain. So that my world's in vain. The license to be an adult life sometime and force change. I understand and I bleed. Bleed even if there is no blood. My family washing out my tears. They water thinner than blood. And I ain't talked to them in years. For them I shed my blood. And now they shot me in the street. I thought that we were blood. It's not enough. Walk my fingers to the bone. Man, it's not enough. This mic I'm spitting on in my fridge. It's not enough. I'm an artist. This I know. In this street's not enough. And when the world stops treating people like they think we ain't enough. Sweep life under a rug. My G. Flawless. When all eyes were watching God, I awoke. My G. Honest. And I ordered a reward and we saw. My G. Honest. We listened to our hearts. Change what was written on it. Mama said, he's a her girl. You stuck up in the clouds. Well, I think we fly high because we stuck up in the clouds. We no longer in this world because we stuck up in the clouds. All we do is blow trees when you stuck up in the clouds. CR. That was Javon Johnson. Uh, and you can find out more. We'll have his links and kind of links to his work up on the 3CR Wednesday Breakfast page for all of you who are interested. And up next, we'll be getting into our tram thoughts for this week. Our topic this week is Lost in Translation. So let's get on to that.
So one of my favourite films is Lost in Translation by Sofia Coppola. And actually that was what got this train of thought sort of going on the number 75 a little while back now. <laughs> um, while thinking quite literally about the title of the film, I happened to think of my own experiences with being lost in translation and whether that being in lost in translation is a really big problem today in our society with understanding a language's meanings, which could also have the potential to lead into the misunderstanding of feelings and culture explained by those languages. This topic is very philosophical, <laughs> but I think it is very important in our modern world with how language can really mould and shape how we think and can feel about a context and idea. So, Edwin. Can I jump in? Uh, like, yeah, I love, go for it. I love the idea this week that you've brought us something that, as you said, a little bit more philosophical. Yeah. Identified the tram which the idea came to you. Like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm liking this kind of more sort of, yeah, this question I'd never even contemplated, actually, really. Because I suppose because yeah. I, I only speak English, so I'm very limited and privileged in that sort of sense where I see that very centric view. Anyway. So, yeah. yeah, no, definitely. No, that's, a, that's actually a very good point that you do bring up as well, because I think for me, like, not that I am the most culturally diverse person in the world, but even just from seeing from my experiences, seeing maybe family members that do speak, have do their English is not their first language. It's just quite interesting just, just to see their mindsets about things shaped from mm. their language. And I think we'll get deeper, deeper into that with this. Totally. Um, but before we do, I just wanted to ask you, what does the phrase to you, um, poetry is what, what does it mean to you when I say poetry is what gets lost in translation? Anything at all on the top of your head, like what does Ooh, that sort of bring um, up for you? Well, for me, I mean, poetry is such a beautiful expression of language because it, it, it takes on words and it gives them new meaning in different contexts, right? It's like the arrangement yeah. of words in new, in new orders brings on something beautiful. And I think what gets lost in translation with poetry is the fact that um, reading a poem, you can have like different readings of it and they can be different interpretations and stuff like that. So not only that from like a consumer a consumption point where you like you read poetry and each person takes something different away, but like the words can mean different things at different times. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of really good poetry, I suppose. And that, that's what yeah. comes to mind for me with lost in translation. I also Definitely. think of potentially like haikus, which I really love, but I recognize that all of my haikus are in English. And if I translated them from, you know, the original, the original yeah. language, like, do you lose the beauty? Do, do you retain it? I think you retain it, but like, and also is that imperialism in the little sense, like in literary sense? Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Definitely. No. And I think what you said about the haiku, we'll talk a little bit later on about the Japanese haiku and just how that mm. sort of has uh, evolved in modern contemporary history um but on my train thought specifically i was thinking ideas that we are left like helpless in understanding thing things incorrectly when translating in regard to topics of poetry we're up to we're left to, to our own devices mm -hmm. but also that leaves room for our interpretation and the issue of like non-societal interpretation where it's just like that whole it's just like the cult the cultural boundary really does step in there and i think mm -hmm. if we can overcome that then a lot more understanding and empathy will be shown to other cultures so a common misconception is that translation is simply a question of transferring information from one language to another by a sort of linguistic algebra and that there is a defined right translation of, of a text. So this is broadly speaking true when you say like today is Wednesday, very easy, yeah. super, there's really no other contextual straightforward things around it. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, when, if it, as soon as st things start getting complicated and with more complex information, that's where we sort of lose our way. More nuance. So, yeah, the nuance sort of issues around it. Um, 
Charles Simic was a Serbian American poet, and he laid out the two sides of the art that the tale with the debate between whether we can translate it or not. Um, he sort of pondered, can one translate a culture, its worldview and its metaphysics? There exists not only idiomatic language and idiomatic imagination, but the accumulative effect of idiomatic usage. So how can all of this be translated? And he just said that this was basically impossible and that we would never be able to do this. Google and then Translate. This- <laughs> yeah, exactly right. No, we need a better Google Translate. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but then that versus the argument of the utopian view, which every culture mm. in the world is enriched by another's countries, another country's literature, which I love and I just think we can really adopt with I think that's that now in our in our history in our modern history I feel like that's what we're leaning to mm, so think, yeah it's exciting isn't it because we find we have a capacity with this globalized world and that's my, maybe one of the pros of it to be able yeah. to do that to be able to share that information potentially mm. yeah exactly right and I think people obviously poetry is not everyone's cup of tea but it as I'll show it can really just flow onto things like political correctness as well as understanding a lot more maybe titled important pieces of literature such as like Quranic or biblical texts that get people quite you know fired up in political realms of the world Mm. um so a paper that I read on practical notes on translating Greek poetry (laughs) makes the (laughs) point that Mm -hmm. um the ingredients of a poem are the context of the subject matter its rhythmic structure and its verbal effects um it's a really complex idea to be translating all of these and the paper emphasizes that the translator must use all of the talents um, and understanding of a language and of the meaning of its original in their own skill in verse to make a new completely um, like it's not, obviously like when you translate people these theorists are saying you can never actually translate that actual poem you just need mm. to make like an educated translation in your own representation of that poem and I feel like that is when you know the issues occur do you, I don't know, I have the next question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the meaning is lost from your experience with whatever that may be when either poetry or perhaps even film is translated from one language to another? I do, I do. I, it's like um, something, something from as like silly to like serious. Something mm-hmm. silly, you, when it's translated into something like English from, you know, another language, you lose so much, of, again, of that nuanced meaning and emotion and character potentially of the culture and just things like we do share different cultural codes around humor or love or things like that so I do feel like there can be that loss at the same time I have seen pieces that have been translated and they've been done with such respect for the original text that they they (laughs) they capture the emotion behind it which is like what you've been saying with the poetry right if you respect your text you can do it authentically but like it's 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 a fine art (laughs) It is, yeah. No, it's 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 a very fine art, and this has been happening more predominantly in the late nineteenth century with a lot of French and really popular colonialist countries that you know mm. were translating from each other. But then that moved through with colonialism in Asia, with as you were saying, haikus, mm. um, with Chinese and Japanese poetry began to be more widely read, and this sort of offered maybe even helped the cause of understanding their culture. And it, it actually, there's been evidence that it helps, you know, colonialists establish, it obviously use it against them, but helps their powers to understand and to get what they want in their colonialist mission by understanding, you know, Chinese and Japanese haikus and poetry and literature. So mm. it's quite interesting. So now we are obviously in an expanding literary, uh, literary translation of globalisation 
where we're looking at Arabic and all the all different forms of Hebrew. Mm. And I think, I don't know, but I for me, I just feel like even in Australia, we could sort of use all of these theories to perhaps even make a conscious effort with our own Indigenous peoples who I, at school, did not learn any much about anything at all, which, you know, obviously mm. angers me and a lot of other people. So I think it's just very, I think that was just a very important point that I came across also when diving deep into this train of thought you know, culture coming into Indigenous culture to respect that language. But also that sharing of language helps bring on understanding of culture and acknowledgement of culture. And uh, look, it just holds so much knowledge and power. So, yeah. Exactly (laughs) right. I think, yeah, I think you've hit on some gold there. Especially because we have this doctrine of multiculturalism in Australia, yet we have none of the soft infrastructure to do it. So it's like this is... Yeah, we are so instilled with that idea that we are supposed to such a multicultural nation but really where is that going like it's like yes. at a standstill we could be pushing so much together and helping all these cultures sort of understand and build empathy and obviously work from there in our societal systems but yeah so I just think it's very interesting um I did yeah so I think maybe my broad my last question is is it ever possible do you think it is ever possible you sort of touched on it before but to correctly translate all meanings and feelings in a language do you think it'll ever be possible? I don't think it'll ever be truly possible in the sense that there are some phrases like, you know, look at some crazy whack out German words, which just mean <laughs> these sensations, which we can't put in English, you know, or, or there's, there's phrases which you just have to be a local to know. And that's all fine. So I, th- I think that's one part of it. I don't think it's ever truly possible. What I think it is, is a huge opportunity for respect building. And if there are certain words or phrases which you can't translate from different languages, don't. Just teach what those meanings are. <laughs> like, teach what those phrases are. And, like, we have a global lexicon. And English is, like, English and all, cult, uh, all languages are constantly, you know, adapting and stuff like that. I think it'd be great to bring in these different phrases and nuances and build collective language whilst also, mm-hmm. obviously, protecting languages that do need saving because obviously languages are a threatened species at times yeah Yeah, exactly right and I think everything that you just said and uh that understanding of the languages can also then flow into bigger broader issues with things such as political correctness and even just labeling things and using the words and etymology of words with labeling in politics even recently with like Trump naming things in a racist tone and then not right right gotcha uh, gotcha so it's that sort of Mm. just even with that like if it's just like um even that is english and that is just a political correctness issue with uh, maybe even understanding another culture's language and another nation's language that could help us resolve you know issues on like wider platforms in our societal realms i i could see that just i suppose from the perspective of like it's an empathy exercise and the more empathy you build the nicer your society should get because we can you know build bridges and so you don't use slurs because you understand the significance behind them and I think you're right that that education just has to keep being punched into us and this is a lovely way of doing it like poetry yeah. for the whim yeah I guess that brings us to the end of the tram thought but I know it wasn't you know it was just a really really random thought and it just really got my philosophical senses going so right the exact we point of channel. <laughs> there we have it. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. That's us done, Jess. But I'm actually going to quickly introduce the next thing before you leave. 
So um, first up, we're going to have a song. This is actually After the Storm. Jess, you chose this song. This is Tyler, the creator. Who else is it? It's a great song. Hi, Kelly Uchis. I'm pretty sure she's awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, and after that, you're also in for a bit of a treat. More conference material from activism at the margins. This time we'll be listening to Professor Lauren Gurry, who will be talking about fourth wave feminism, the fat, fat activism and patriarchal femininity. And basically within this speech, Lauren maps out uh, the fat activism community and sees how activists are coming together online, using online spaces to challenge traditional portrayals of like what they say is skinny women kind of body image and this sort of one idea, one size fits all idea with alternative models of health, creative supportive networks and yeah, just some really amazing expression going on. Yeah. And then we'll be closing our show on that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jess, for your transports. <laughs> No worries, hope you enjoyed. Whatever goes around eventually comes back to you. So you gotta be careful, baby, and look both ways before you cross my mind.
I'm a senior lecturer in marketing uh, here at RMIT University. And today I'm going to be speaking to you about an ethnography that I had conducted with the fat activism community in Australia. what really struck me when I was conducting my ethnographic work with uh, this activist group was the ways in which patriarchal femininity or idealised femininity was negotiated uh, by these women. So what also struck me was the way in which this also mainly tended to take place within digital culture. So if we're thinking about fourth wave feminism just very colloquially as uh, a place in which sort of this digital culture uh, and activism around feminism are sort of converging together, they're sort of broadly some of the topics that I'm going to be canvassing with you today here. So feminist scholars have long been interested in how the thin ideal communicates the unacceptability of variety in women's bodies, particularly that this is considered as patriarchal, oppressive and instrumental to sustaining gender inequality. So the thin ideal certainly remains very much a normative requirement for successful Western femininity, maintained through what's called the fashion beauty complex. So this is that this idealised feminine body is replete across a variety of different cultural products and it tends to really dominate marketing images. And it's through this that women are instructed that thinness is really the only acceptable body shape. Moreover, this requires an ongoing commitment to altering and improving one's body and, conveniently enough, that many of these solutions can be found in consumer capitalism as well. So they're replete across the marketplace and that's how it's then sold back. Now, the evidence is obviously completely overwhelming that the thin ideal fosters anxieties about bodies that can have a range of negative impacts. And that this starts from a young age where evidence highlights that girls as young as three are internalising the thin ideal. So one of the key messages that then is communicated through the fashion, beauty and weight loss industries is that thinness connotes to attractiveness and desirability. So what that means is that women who are thin are thus then conforming to the feminine ideal, but fatness represents the absolute antithesis of the ideal feminine woman. And as a result, what we're seeing is that fatness is really completely absent in popular culture. The only time we see fatness in popular culture is when it's positioned as something that needs to be restored to normality. So what do I mean by femininity? So here I am drawing upon feminist theorists uh, to define femininity as an ideological construct around which norms and expectations cohere about the way that women should be. And this is more broadly constructed within a context of male domination. And it's this engagement with the feminine ideal and often its performance to men, which is how women might attempt to gain power and status uh, in a patriarchal society. Now, women who do not conform to these ideals are then cast to the margins as deviant. So in deviating from this idealised femininity, fatness then becomes what is known as a pariah femininity. So when it's embodied by women, it signals a refusal to complement hegemonic masculinity in a relation of subordination. 
So consequently, fatness then becomes stigmatised and sanctioned for the threat that it poses to male dominance. So fat women then come to violate this sort of cultural ideal of the contained feminine body. Now, fat women are punished in a variety of ways for this. The evidence highlights that there are negative consequences for employment opportunities, for income, for educational and healthcare experiences, for romantic relationships, and certainly portrayal in the media. Now, there is a growing field of critical scholarship called FAT Studies, which examines how these kind of prejudices have come to be legitimised and sanctioned against fat bodies. Now, primarily, this group of studies tends to focus on how discourses of health have come to be used to stereotype and marginalise fat people, but it also has looked at how fat women come to be marginalised in a thin-centric consumer culture. So, for example, that there are very limited options in the field of fashion for fat women, that fat women are entirely absent in advertising, and these very fat phobic messages that are communicated through products and services that either capitalise on women's fear of becoming fat or they purport to fix fatness in some way. So in response to a lot of this has been this growing socio-political activism that has come to converge around fatness, colloquially known as either fat activism or fat acceptance, and uh, there's a bit of a challenge between which of those terms can be taken up within the community as well. And this tends to be primarily composed of women who identify as fat, and they adopt a feminist perspective on fat embodiment. But activists also draw from other more established social justice movements, such as anti-racism um, anti or LGBTIQ uh, social movements, in trying to position fatness as a type of body diversity. So what are the goals, then, of fat activism? Uh, well, there's quite a few, but broadly uh, they tend to sort of sit within these three spaces. Uh, to challenge any assumptions and stigma about fat bodies. To encourage individuals to really own their fatness and be proud of their fatness and to also embrace that as a political identity. And reclaiming this term fatness from being this very negative insult to just a descriptor of corpulent bodies. And in doing so, also wanting to you know, work, work away from these more medicalised terms that tend to be used uh, in the place of fat, such as obese or overweight, and moving away from those words which can be very harmful and very stigmatising. So the way in which fat activists try to promote body diversity then is through things like experimentation with fashion, building supportive networks uh, around them, establishing alternative models of health and critiquing media representations of fatness. Now, evidence also highlights that engagement with fat activism, with fat activism sorry, has really positive health and wellbeing impacts for those who are part of this community. So fat activists report greater self-acceptance, greater social connectedness, diminished feelings of body shame and improved mental and physical health. But resisting the thin ideal is obviously not a straightforward process for fat activists. The thin ideal is culturally pervasive and thinness offers a range of privileges still in society today. 
So these very complex and contradictory experiences really tend to relate uh, in, in large to fat women and that's because women tend to suffer the material and social consequences of fat stigma quite disproportionately to that of men. Now research has also highlighted that efforts to act normal or socially assimilate can be absolutely exhausting for fat people. Research also highlights that difference uh, is really critical in challenging politics when it comes to body size, gender and beauty. So looking at how these two areas can come together is um, possibly of real great utility. That being said, it's still quite underexplored how fat women are drawing upon difference to negotiate and resist, resist sorry, idealised femininity in a cultural thinness and particularly how this plays out in relation to the fashion beauty complex. So that's where this study comes in. <laughs> so thinking about that sort of broad area in mind, um, my study posed these questions. How do fat women construct oppositional strategies to idealised femininity? What do these strategies of non-compliance constitute? And how does this challenge the normative influence of the feminine ideal in their lives? So, uh, as I said at the start of my presentation, I conducted a two-year-long ethnography of the fat activism community in Australia. I started by really immersing myself into this research site. So I let, read a lot of books about fat activism. I started following very prominent uh, fat activists in the blogosphere, or the fatosphere as it's known, uh, within this particular community. And I officially began my data collection um, in terms of a 12-month-long netnographic immersion into the fact activism community in Australia. So I first established a relationship with a key informant. Uh, she's a key activist in this space. And I analysed two months' worth of her blog posts to really get a sort of a sense of the train and a sense of the field. I then broadened this to include an additional five uh, activists who were introduced to me through the key informant. So I then continued for another 12 months to collect this blog and social media-based data, but I also augmented it with some more real-life uh, ethnographic observations as well. So some face-to-face -face interviews with the activists uh, that were either quite formal or just quite conversational and sort of on the go. Uh, but I was really interested in how this activism that I was seeing taking place online was translating into the everyday lives um, of these women. Now, the way in which I captured that data uh, was primarily through... I did use field notes, but it was primarily through photography. And uh, that was uh, for a very particular purpose. So all of the images, and you can see that it was quite a large corpus of data that was collected in the end, um, all of the images that I had taken uh, in this research study I used to create an image library. That was because it came apparent to me very, very early on that one of the key challenges was around the representation of fatness in the media. And when there was a story about obesity in the news, that these very marginalising and stigmatising photos would be used. It's called the headless fatty. It's where the it tends to be a woman or it could be a man's head is chopped off and then you sort of see the slovenly body that's presented. So all of the images were then put onto this image library which is freely available, can be readily accessed so that anyone within the media or any other stakeholders, educators, uh, activists, whoever it might be, can use these images in the place of these more stigmatising images.
So what did I find in my study? So my key, I guess, overall finding was that fat women are creating and mobilising what I've called these feminist safer spaces online in which they're sharing their very personal experiences and that in turn works to sort of create these oppositional strategies that can negotiate and resist cultural expectations of idealised femininity. Now, these oppositional strategies of non-compliance to the feminine ideal uh, I saw as sort of these, in these three-fold sort of areas. Um, what's called celebrating ugliness, and uh, that's a powerful term. I'll come to that in a moment. Taking up space and rejecting diet culture. So this first theme around celebrating ugliness, now this is uh, my informant's words, uh, this isn't me imposing my sort of researcher-informed view upon this. What this act sort of spoke to was how fat women were transgressing the feminine ideal through these acts that questioned you know, the notion that appearance matters at all. So the activists refused to participate in consumer culture according to the boundaries of idealised femininity. So they embraced what was dictated as being ugly by the fashion beauty complex. So what does that mean? For example, they might have rejected a whole series of grooming protocols, so they didn't remove their body hair, uh, they made their stretch marks absolutely visible and didn't hide them in any way. They also rejected fashion policing, uh, which sort of came through the fashion system more broadly. So these ideas that fat women should slim their bodies, they should flatter their bodies, they should only wear certain colours, they outright rejected this. So they refused to hide their bodies. They would wear bikinis, they would tattoo their upper arms and then bare their arms out in public, which is a no-no according to the fashion system. They would wear really bright colours uh, instead of very muted colours. And... They explored all of these different types of oppositional strategies through these digital spaces that were policed by the fat activism community to be absolutely free of body shaming or any appearance-based judgment. Now, this is because the fat activists absolutely recognised the cultural hostilities of transgressing the feminine ideal. So these digital spaces then offered an opportunity to explore what it meant to transgress the feminine ideal and also actively resist these ideals in everyday life. Now, that's not to say that this was a completely utopian space. Uh, there were obvious challenges for the activists in the form of trolling and harassment and bullying uh, online by others that would come on and leave comments or send them direct messages. So I'm not saying that this is a panacea, but uh, you know, it at least created the opportunity to explore this in a space where there was self-policing by the community and those types of comments did tend to be shut down. But you know, the comments were still present. The second sort of theme uh, or the way in which these fat activists would negotiate idealised femininity was through this theme of taking up space. So here they were challenging fat hostility and the exclusion that was, uh, sort of, I guess, perp uh, perpetuated by the feminine ideal. So there's lots of spaces where fat women are simply not welcome in society. And the fat activists would refuse to withdraw themselves from these spaces and that was where this activism came in. So they would go shopping in regular size, 
clothing stores and they would use this strategy called make it work. You would just make an item of clothing work for your body. They would go shopping, uh, sorry, they would go swimming in public pools, spaces that they would often usually experience a lot of hostility and certainly not feel welcome. So that was a very sort of brave move to be doing. Um, and they would participate in things like dance classes where, again, their body type was not sort of genuinely wel- uh, g- generally welcome in the past. And when they're in, in these spaces, they absolutely refuse to be bullied. So if someone was staring at them, they would stare back at them. If someone took a photo of them, they would take a photo back of the person who was taking that photo of them. So that was one way in which uh, they sort of took up space. The other way was that they challenged sort of the very constraints of space that are presented in a thin-centric society. So they would refuse, for example, to sit in a chair if it had an arm on either side of it, and they would ask for a chair that was more comfortable for themselves. If they were walking down the footpath, they wouldn't try to shrink their body. They would just walk down and they would refuse to move out of the way, which is something perhaps in the past that they'd always felt that they had to do. Now, the way in which these types of oppositional strategies of taking up space emerged, uh, they would vent often about these very negative experiences they'd had in their everyday lives um, online. And this would then build this kind of collective momentum um, and collective action then around, well, what can we do to try to challenge this? So that would then embolden the activist to try to challenge these experiences of fat hostility in their everyday lives, whether that was by themselves um, or sometimes, particularly when it was their first time challenging these types of hostilities, they might do it in smaller groups so that there was a sense of solidarity with one another. This also spilled over into their digital lives as well. Uh, If someone had left um, a trolling comment or had harassed them online, they would report the IP address to either the service provider of the internet or if it could be traced to a workplace, uh, they would uh, report that to the workplace that this was a sort of comment that was used through a workplace system. So in other words, they were refusing to be silenced. The third way in which uh, the fat activists would negotiate and resist the feminine ideal was through this rejection of diet culture. So diet culture very much perpetuates the shaming and the policing of fat bodies. So my uh, informants would talk about the different ways that they would experience this in their everyday lives. Uh, If they were in uh, a grocery store and they were shopping, people would look and peer into their trolley to see about what what they were buying. Uh, People would directly comment on the choices of food that they were making, if they were eating their lunch out in a public space, or even if they were in a workplace, um, a a colleague might make uh, a seemingly innocuous comment, but it was clear what the comment was about. It was very, uh, this was an awful experience. Uh, When people were being active, they were moving their bodies. So even if they were walking to a bus stop, people would say things to them, would call out things at them um, because they didn't fit these ideals. Now, that could range from, you know, just a subtle nod, maybe pointing at someone to outright verbal abuse. And one of uh, the activists who I was speaking to recounted a really uh, awful story where she was sitting down in her home, she was having her dinner one night and she was watching the news and she saw herself on the news for, it was a news uh, cut about an obesity epidemic, uh, a news story, and her head was chopped off and she was actually just sitting in that day having her lunch in a public space. So, you know, this sort of... Shaming and policing of fat bodies is just so marked uh, in society. 
So they would collectively reject this notion of the diet culture by repudiating all of these different bodily restrictions and the surveillance that were fostered by, by idealised femininity. So activists would call out uh, industries that perpetuate diet culture as being absolutely harmful and they refused to sort of curtail to this ethics of self-correction that was uh, sort of fostered and marketed by these types of industries. And in fact, they would be very open about the fact that it was these diet culture industries that had fostered very problematic and disordered relationships that they'd come to have with food throughout their lives. Now, what these different online engagements with one another did end up fostering, which was very positive, was that it allowed the activists to rediscover and... Uh, yeah, rediscover, I guess is the nicest word, this sort of pleasure, uh, a pleasurable relationship with food again. So it really worked to repair their relationship with food. So that would be through uh, things like normalising uh, the enjoyment of cooking or eating out, um, sharing stories about how they would combat diet talk uh, when others would engage in diet talk, the ways in which they could shut that down or remove themselves from situations like that. And as I said, all of this sort of worked to repair their relationship that they had with food. They also quite... Uh, boldly would refuse to be responsible in the ways that they were expected to as fat women. So if it was a hot day, they would have an ice cream uh, out in a public space. If they were with friends in a restaurant, they would order dessert at the end of their meal. So just these tiny sort of little, uh, you know, micro-emancipatory moments uh, they would really embrace as a way of challenging and rejecting diet culture. So they were ignoring this cultural imperative, if you like, to restrict food, uh, to transform and improve their bodies to achieve this thin ideal. So, as I said, what I found in this study uh, was that fat women were creating and mobilising these feminist safer spaces online in which they would share these very personal experiences and then enact these oppositional strategies to negotiate and resist the cultural expectations of idealised femininity. So safer spaces become really critical to fat activism. They provide, even if it's just temporary, a community where people feel listened to and they feel valued. And they offer these strategies to resist these dynamics of oppression that perpetuate the thin ideal in turn. So in some ways it's a nod uh, to the feminist consciousness raising groups of yesteryear. So fat activism is also formed on the basis of a shared identity and a shared oppression. The difference, though, is that it's operating in a digital space, um, and that really changes the dynamics uh, of consciousness raising in that way. So you're still ex uh, sharing these very personal experiences with the goal of political action, but the type of work and maintenance that goes into these digital safer spaces is quite different. Uh, what I would say is that, and why I've called them safer spaces rather than safe spaces, is that they can offer relative but never absolute levels of safety. Uh, and that was quite apparent uh, throughout the data collection and my analysis. Because trolling and harassment are always a threat um, for the fat activists and particularly fat women. Even if the activist community is actively policing um, and monitoring these safe spaces themselves. So, through these oppositional strategies and the creation of these feminist safer spaces, the fat activists were able to challenge the normative influence of the feminine ideal in their lives. And the key way in which they did that was simply by making fat 
more visible. So at the start, I spoke about this sort of cultural invisibility of fat. This was by making fat much more visible, much more prominent, and something not to be ashamed of, um, but possibly something to be proud of. That said, fatness still absolutely remains a pariah femininity culturally today. Uh, the difference is through the activists, it just wasn't now something that they were willing to contain. Thank you. Our Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.